Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In today's world, people feel lost in a sea of ideas. Which ones should we accept? Stay tuned because you're listening to Veracity Hill. Striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. Here is your host, Kurt Jarris. Well, a good day to you, and thanks for joining us here for another episode of Veracity Hill, where we are striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. Here we are. We have made it to episode 200. Uh, what a remarkable feat! that we are very proud to uh, have accomplished here at our program, which has been coming to you out of the offices of Defenders Media in the western suburbs of Chicago. As Chris in the past has called it before, it's the the best international apologetics podcast coming out of West Chicago. That is correct. And Undisputed claim. Un, who can really compete with that? Yes. Um, for those who may be joining us for the first time, this is <laughs> surely the only international apologetics podcast. Still true, though. Yes, very yeah. <laughs> much still true. Uh, it's not like world's best coffee sort of claim. You know, it's right. It's a tautology. It's a, it is so. a modest claim. Yes, that's right. And it has been an honor uh, for me to, uh, in most episodes, to be coming to you from this chair. Uh, and I've been reflecting upon uh, the program and its history, which got started uh, in my home in the spare bedroom uh, with just a small little basic mixer and audio only. We hadn't even thought of it doing it video right um joel and i huddled around a mixer half the size of what we're using now yeah just keeping an eye on the show and call in studio that's right that's right and then it just evolved and we realized hey video is where it's at so we uh slowly found ways to improve the quality if you go back to the older episodes Mm -hmm. (laughs) all available on youtube Uh, yes that's right yeah Yeah. and improved from some of the problems we encountered over the weeks Yes, we've learned much through experience, and certainly if we had to do it again, we'd do things maybe a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. But uh, nevertheless, here we are, and uh, it's been a good run. We are taking uh, what we're calling an indefinite hiatus uh, after today's episode, and uh, I'll be uh, focusing my efforts uh, over at Faith Ascent Ministries, which is my new organization. And if you don't uh, follow them on Facebook or Twitter, uh, please do so, Faith Ascent Ministries. It's a wonderful organization uh, which is uh, focusing on doing Christian formation for teenagers, helping uh, them and their parents uh, with resources and, and helping them to stave off what studies are showing is a, is a concern for what happens when teenagers go off to college. And so I'm looking forward to bringing more content to you. Uh, I'm by no means going out of the public eye, just wearing a different hat, doing something a little, little bit different, but very much excited about that opportunity. And speaking of excitement, uh, on today's episode, it is uh, my distinct pleasure to um, have our episode, this what is likely the final episode of Veracity Hill, that we're ta- calling The Case for Christ. And uh, who else uh, should we uh, invite and 
that we be so honored uh, with his presence than none other than Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel is an award-winning journalist formerly with the Chicago Tribune. Between 1987 and 2000, he was a pastor at Willow Creek Community Church uh, here in the western suburbs of Chicago, northwest suburbs, and thereafter was the host of a TV show called Faith Under Fire, whereby uh, he pitted uh, Christians and non-Christians on a number of controversial issues. Even as a kid, I remember seeing it on uh, PAX TV. I, I don't think it was called PAX back then. Maybe it was, it was Channel 38 for me when I was a kid. And uh, his 1998 book, The Case for Christ, this little version right here, The Case for Christ has sold over 5 million copies, and it served as the trailblazer for a series of Case for Books, Case for Faith, The Case for the Creator, The Case for Now Miracles, and others, which all together, that series has sold around 15 million copies. He is the founding director of the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University. His impact for edifying believers, of which I am honored to consider myself, and for winning the minds of seekers, continues to this day. Lee, thank you so much for joining us on our program today. I'm so glad to be with you. Congratulations on your 200th uh, 200th podcast. That's awesome. That's quite an accomplishment. Thank you. Yes, we've been doing it uh, every week uh, for almost four years, uh, every Saturday bringing new content, and it has been a lot of fun to do this. Awesome. That's terrific. Congratulations on that. Thank you. I am getting a little bit emotional thinking about uh, when I was a high school student, when I was seeking the deep questions of life, I was born and raised in a Christian home, went to church every Sunday. I paid attention in Sunday school, so I knew all the Bible answers. Uh, and in high school, I began to ap- ask those deep questions of life, um, which this is one of the reasons why I am very pleased about my new opportunity in St. Louis. But I, the first book I ever read on, in apologetics was Paul Copan's True for You But Not for Me. Oh, yeah. I also read Jesus Among Other, Go- Other Gods by uh, Ravi Zacharias. And right. then third. Yeah, I look forward to that one. And then third, I read your book, The Case for Christ. And that's the book that I started passing out to people at, at my public high school, Downers Grove South High School. Awesome. Uh, so you have been a part of my journey. And um, so thank you for your work. And right. just just knowing. Uh, the the interviews you conducted, th- those are people that I communicate with uh, today as part of my work, and it's your impact just continues on. Uh, so thank you so much for your ministry. I appreciate that. That's so kind. You know, it, it's always great also to talk to another Chicagoan, another Cubs fan. Amen. Amen, <laughs> brother. <laughs> no doubt a uh, deep dish pizza fan as well. Oh, uh, Giordano's is my favorite. I don't know oh. what- just I just yesterday had delivered two frozen Giordano's pizza down to Houston, where I live. And for lunch yesterday, my wife and I made one of the pizzas and ate it. We gave one slice to my daughter, who lives around the corner. But um, we ate a Giordano's pizza. It was awesome. It's been so long. <laughs> oh, it was great. My friend Mike Lacona texted me just the other day, and he asked, uh, are there any Giordano's in St. Louis? And unfortunately, there are not. Um, but it's 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 Mike's new favorite deep dish. I mean, he just craves it now. <laughs> it's awesome. Well, that's good to know. Maybe I'll surprise him and send him a couple uh, frozen ones in oh, the mail. 
You would definitely make his day. Yes, yes. And that's how popular Giordano's is. They will send you frozen. I think they send it through a, a plain dry ice, right, is what they that's use. That's right. <laughs> with dry ice through FedEx. You get it the next day. And uh, it's totally frozen when you get it. And you just put it in the oven for 45 minutes. And it tastes like you're sitting there in Giordano's right there in uh, the western suburbs. Yes, yes. I uh, um, And, and well, we'll certainly get to talking about you and your journey more. I was in uh, Denver just a couple years ago for ETS. And I saw yeah. they, they had one in downtown Denver, Giordano's. They do. I didn't even know that. Are you right? Is that? Oh, that's awesome. Yep. That's awesome. Well, they're expanding. They're they're great. There's another one called Eduardo's. Have you been to Eduardo's? I have not. No. It's very similar. In fact, I think the guy who started Eduardo's used to work at Giordano's, but uh, that's a similar pizza, but it's definitely my favorite. Yeah. Very nice. Okay. All right, Lee, you have um, probably told your story thousands of times over, um, but nevertheless, uh, I'd like to hear it maybe for myself. Tell me about where your story begins. Well, right there in Chicago. I uh, grew up in Chicago. My dad was an attorney who had his own um, business in downtown Chicago. We lived in Arlington Heights. Uh, he took the train downtown every day. In fact, he died on the way to the train one day when he was 64 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I grew up in a middle class uh, suburban setting um, and took three steps into atheism. Uh, the first step was when I was in junior high school and I started asking the embarrassing questions about faith that all junior high schoolers like to ask. And uh, nobody was willing to engage with me. So I figured, oh, I get it. There's no good answer. So um, they don't want to talk about it. So that was my first step. Second step was at Prospect High School when I was um, a, a student there. And I was taught that neo-Darwinism explains the origin and diversity of life. So God's out of a job. And then I went to the University of Missouri to study journalism. And um, freshman year, I took a course on the historical Jesus taught by a skeptic. And he convinced me you can't trust what the New Testament tells you. <laughs> and that sort of cemented my uh, my journey into atheism. Um, and I, I, I'm a very pragmatic person. So my attitude was, and I'm not saying all atheists are like this. I'm just saying this was my perspective. I said, to myself, if there is no God, if there is no heaven, if there is no hell, if there is no judgment, if there is no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way to live life would be as a hedonist. I mean, is your one shot? You might as well soak all the pleasure you can out of life. And and, uh, that's what I did. So I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic, uh, self-absorbed, really in some way self-destructive kind of a life. What people saw was me winning awards for investigative reporting because I became the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune. Um, What they didn't see was the other side, which Mm. was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. Mm. Well, I was successful uh, at the uh, Tribune. I have a a background. I have a master's degree in um, uh, law from uh, Yale Law School. Um, So I was successful in life, but uh, very empty uh, and really focused on the wrong things and hurting a lot of people in my narcissism. And um, um, so it affected our family. I remember my daughter, Allison, who was a toddler. You know, if if I were um, if, if she were playing in the living room with some toys and she heard me come home from work through the front door. Her natural reaction was just to gather her toys and go in a room and shut the door. Is she going to be drunk again? Is she going to be yelling and screaming? And one day I kicked a hole through the wall in anger. Is she going to be kicking holes in walls? 
it's just nice and quiet in here. So, you know, this affected my family life. My wife was agnostic. She didn't know what to think about God. And uh, then um, one day she met a neighbor who was a Christian and a nurse. They became best friends. She had a daughter, the same age as our little daughter. And they had a lot of spiritual conversations. Um, Leslie went to church with her. And then one day she brought me the worst news an atheist could get. Um, she said, uh, I'm become a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh, no. I mean, first word that went through my mind was divorce. Mm. I was going to walk. In fact, my first thing I did after this conversation, I was so mad. I, I had to mow the lawn. And she had just... <laughs> She had just planted a flower bed. So I went out and I mowed down the whole flower bed. <laughs> Anger. So that, that's my mature um, reaction to her conversion to Christ. <laughs> um, so and then over the months, I saw positive changes, uh, honestly, in her character and her values and the way she related to me and the kids. And it was winsome and it was attractive. But at the same time, I wanted the old Leslie back. I wanted our old life back. And so I figured, well, why don't I investigate Christianity? I'm trained in journalism and law. Uh, I could uh, do what I did at the Chicago Tribune um, when I did investigative articles. I just investigate. And I'm going to try to do it honestly. I'm going to call a ball a ball and a strike a strike. Um, but my hope was I could disprove it and rescue her from this cult that she's gotten involved in. So uh, I launched uh, on what turned out to be a nearly two year investigation of the evidence, uh, focusing not exclusively, but uh, significantly on the resurrection of Jesus, because I realize even as an atheist, that's the ballgame uh, for for Christianity. Mm. Nice. Uh, before we jump into more about the resurrection and your uh, adventures uh, traveling across uh, the country, if not the globe, uh, interviewing uh, scholars. Let me ask you about your, your work as an investigative reporter. Yeah. So, so there is um, a one case that you use as, as your lead-in, and it features in the, the feature-length film uh, yeah. made about you, although the names are different, I noticed. It's still on Netflix. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, which is amazing. I mean, when you think about it, praise God. No, it's been three years on Netflix. I can't believe it. Wow, it's great. Uh, just an ongoing... Uh, work of God that that easily appears to people, uh, you know, especially these days when everyone's home. <laughs> That's true. That's, I've had so many people who've come to faith through the movie. I, I met a pastor in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, about six months ago, and he said, my personal ministry is when I meet someone who's not a Christian, I invite him over to my house to watch the Case for Christ movie. And I said, oh, that's awesome. How's it going? He said, well, 37 people have come to faith. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's fantastic! Wonderful. So the gospel is in it, and and uh, it's pretty accurate. There's time shifting in the movie and some composite characters, but uh, you know, for a based on true story movie, it's it's pretty close to the to the bullseye. Yeah, yeah, very nice. Certainly reliable and uh, gives even more than the core. But okay, so there's uh, in the film and in in real life, you had a a. Um, uh, a number of events there that you were investigating where uh, allegedly a cop had been shot by right. by a guy. Um, I forget the name in the movie, but in real life, in the movie, in the in the his real life name was James Dixon. James Dixon, yeah, the Dixon case. So, yeah. tell me a little bit about that case and um, how it was set up, and then eventually you came to realize, oh, you were 
missing all the details or the rationale of the argument didn't line up with the facts. Yeah, you know, you could uh, you could marshal the evidence uh, and make a convincing case against James Dixon for shooting this police officer. I mean, the evidence was there. Um, he he had gone to his girlfriend's house. He had um, pounded on. They had a, had had an argument. They, he pounded on the door with his gun. His gun goes off. Uh, it leaves a chip in the sidewalk. He um, hides the gun. Um, a police officer comes and uh, they have a, a tussle and the police officer shot. Um, they search the area. They find his gun in the bushes. It has a bullet missing. Um, um, and he can they confront him with everything and they make him a deal after he spends a year in jail waiting trial. They said, look, if you admit you did it, we'll let you go. So he said, "Okay, I did it. So he's confessed to it. So you had a lot of evidence that pointed in the direction of him being guilty. But um, and, you know, he was a gangbanger. Um, He'd been convicted before of attempted murder, although that was overturned by the appellate court. Um, Everything pointed in the direction of him being guilty. But then I got a tip one day uh, from uh, a source of mine who said that um, uh, the police officer earlier had been at a party. And at this party, he was showing off a pen gun, which is a gun that's shaped like a fountain pen, but is actually a 22 caliber pistol. And he was showing this off at the party. And so I got this tip. And so then I began to investigate the case from a different perspective. And I looked at the police officer's um, shirt that was uh, he was wearing when he was shot. And what you noticed was the powder burns were inside the pocket. Um, And by the way, there was a the the way the shirt was, there was a flap over the pocket and then a place where you could put a fountain pen into the pocket. Well, the the powder burns were concentrated at the bottom inside the pocket and the bullet trajectory went down and and wounded him as it went down and and went through his stomach. And and they never found the bullet itself. So uh, that kind of it was a better explanation for what had happened. And of course, they found a bullet missing from the gun. Because as witnesses said, when the guy was pounding the gun against the door, the gun went off. And that's where the why there was a bullet missing. Um, And they found it in a bush because that's where he put it before the police officer ever arrived on the scene. So my point is, even though my bias against this gangbanger and looking at the evidence seemed to suggest very strongly he was guilty. When I put on a different pair of glasses and I began to look through these lenses at a different explanation, this other explanation fit the evidence more snugly. And I saw instantly later the the analogy with my own spiritual perspective. Um, You know, I could I could build a case against Christianity and it'd be pretty good. Um, um, But then if you put your glasses on uh, and you look through a different lens you begin to see the evidence for Christianity fits the evidence and fits the facts so much tighter, so much better. And um, so I kind of use the James Dixon story as um, uh, a jumping off point in the book. And uh, um, so James Dixon, by the way, ended up um, being released by the police after he was found. I did a bunch of exposés for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, The police officer was indicted and convicted of official misconduct. James Dixon was uh, released from prison. He sued the city and got a $55,000 or $50,000 judgment. But 
one day, a few months after he got out of jail, he was walking down the street and another gang member jumped out and shot him five times. But he lived. But they sent him to the hospital and the and all of the money he'd gotten on the settlement from the city of Chicago went to paying the hospital bills. So this poor guy oh. just had the hardest time. And I, I recently tried to track him down and, and uh, see if I could reconnect with him. I can't find him. I don't know, ever mm. know what happened to him. Mm. All right. So you've used this example of the glasses, putting on different glasses here. Yeah. When you were uh, not just a skeptic but in many ways a cynic uh, interviewing yeah. these scholars, uh, these um, – the vast majority of them were evangelical Christians. But I think maybe a couple of them hadn't been um, – in, in, in your investigation? Yeah, I mean, it's important to understand the sequence. I had, um, when I did my original investigation, uh, I wasn't planning to write a book. I, I was just doing it for my own edification and for getting reasons to hopefully get my wife out of this cult. So, you know, I was not very systematic about it. Um, I was calling people on the phone, uh, people uh, who are experts in, in different areas. Uh, I would do research in books. I would do research at the, the British Museum. Um, I would um, do a lot of reading of documents and so forth, like at the American Medical Association, which published a, an account of the death of Jesus. Um, so it was years later when my wife suggested, why don't you do a book on this? That that's when I went out and said, well, if I'm going to do that, I got to get these interviews systematically done and on the record. So as my book talks about, I retraced and expanded upon my original investigation by going out and interviewing uh, 13 scholars with PhDs from Brandeis and Cambridge and other major universities to try to get the most current thinking and um, and, and to tape record everything and, and make sure I had it all right. So that's kind of the sequence. So when I did this original investigation, I was um, I was reading all kinds of stuff and, and researching all kinds of stuff from the atheist position. You know, I read a lot of Bertrand Russell, um, Why I'm Not a Christian and, and some of his other materials. I read stuff by Anthony Flew, uh, who is a famous uh, uh, atheist. Uh, he wrote the book, The Presumption of Atheism. Uh, I read stuff by Albert Schweitzer. Uh, I read um, you know, some well-known um, uh, theologians. Um, who are both liberal and conservative. Um, I read more popular writers like Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison, who was a British uh, newspaper man, uh, I think in the advertising area, who investigated the resurrection many years ago. Uh, I even read, there's a fascinating book, and I remember going to the local library and doing an interlibrary loan to get this book, and it took three months for them to track down this book, but they finally tracked it down. I remember getting it. It's about six inches thick, not that much, but it may, maybe, you know, four inches thick. And it was by Simon Greenleaf, who in the 1800s was one of the two key legal scholars who made Harvard Law School what it is today, which is the second best law school in the country after Yale. And, um, uh, he was a brilliant scholar and he applied his legal thinking to the resurrection and wrote a book called The Testimony of the Four Evangelists. I believe that was the title. And um, so I remember getting that book, which was tattered. It was published who knows how many decades ago. And I remember consuming that. And um, so it was quite an adventure of research. But that's what I did for a living was to check things out and research things. So. When we're talking about your investigation here, this is not a Christian just seeking for 
stock answers on what to say when someone comes to them with an objection. You did this as someone who did not believe, wanted yeah. to disprove it in order to save your marriage in your mind. Yeah. And so you really fought hard here uh, to find ways that it just couldn't be true. Well, maybe they made it up or maybe they stole the body or maybe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. You, right. you went through the gamut of objections. And what what were the responses you were facing uh, by these authorities? Well, you know, I, I try, you know, I'm from the old school of journalism. I went to the first and I think the greatest journalism school in the country, which is the University of Missouri's journalism school. And uh, we were taught back then that you set aside your biases as best you can. And you look at both sides when you're writing uh, any kind of an article. And when I was at the Chicago Tribune, I was an adamant atheist. I was very much pro-life, pro-abortion, uh, pro-choice. And yet when I would cover court cases involving abortion, you would read my articles. You couldn't tell where I stood. You, you had, had no idea because I fully told both sides of every issue. So th- now I say that because that's not how journalism is today. <laughs> uh, and it's changed, unfortunately. But that's how I was trained. And so when I did my investigation, even though I wanted the outcome to be to liberate my wife from this cult, I was I picture myself at a Chicago Cubs game uh, as the umpire. And if a ball is a ball, I'm going to call it a ball. If it strikes a strike and I'm just going to let the uh, the the balls fall where they may. And so when I did this investigation, I tried to ask the questions that bothered me as a skeptic. I'm not a legal and I'm I'm not a New Testament scholar. Um, uh, I'm not a uh, historian by trade, uh, but. You know, I'm educated. Um, I knew how to investigate things. And I had the objections that to me seemed to undermine the Christian story, especially the resurrection of Jesus, because I was, you know, as a journalist, I'd seen plenty of dead bodies, um, but I've never seen any come back to life after three days. So that's why I thought this is the soft spot of Christianity. This is the easy place to attack. Because certainly, give me a long weekend and I can prove that uh, dead people don't come back to the dead. <laughs> yeah, and, and you know, even people back then knew, yeah, you're right, dead people don't come back from the dead. <laughs> yeah, they knew what dead was back then. Um, absolutely. Hilarious. Um, Okay, Lee, we've got to take a break here. When we come back, we will continue our discussion uh, talking about the resurrection and uh, – uh, and other issues as well, like why apologetics is important for Christians and uh, and and the like. And I also uh, want to hear about your your new venture coming up, and and we'll we'll get to that towards the end of the program. Right. Uh, all right. So stick with us through this short break from our sponsors. You're listening to Veracity Hill, striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. Evangelical Christians are talking about hell. What if we believe what we believe because we've always believed it? What if the gospel is really a matter of life and death? We want you to open your mind, open your Bible, and rethink hell. At RethinkingHell.com, evangelicals look at what the Bible says about hell, putting conventional and controversial views to the test. Let's say there's this Christian apologist. You love their message, 
but have trouble finding their videos, their articles, or social media posts. How do you stay connected to them? We're on it. Defenders Media uses the tools of the digital age to create content for your favorite apologists. We give them more screen time, more digital soapboxes, and more presence to deliver more of the content that you love. That's what we do. I know that social media is important to those of you who follow my work. Many respond to my videos and posts on Facebook and Twitter. But it becomes impossible after a while to keep up with it all and to continue with research. That's why I'm thrilled that we have found a solution. Defenders Media. Whether it's a website, whether it's printed material, whether it's a question on graphics, I cannot do what I do and reach my audience without the help of Defenders Media. They have been integral in helping me to reach my audience. Defenders Media ensures consistent content reaches your hand from today's leading apologists and apologetic ministries like Mike Lycona, Apologetics 315, the Veracity Hill podcast with Kurt Jarris, and more. To learn more, text the word DEFENDERS to 555-888, and we'll send you a free PDF of the top five ways to share the gospel online. Thanks for sticking with us through that short break from our sponsors. If you'd like to learn how you can become a sponsor, you can go to our website, veracityhill.com, We'd love to get your sponsorship for our ongoing ministry. So let me take a a moment to talk about that. The ministry of Veracity Hill will continue on. There are 200-some episodes. Every now and again, I maybe did one on my own solo show, but roughly 200 episodes. And there uh, is just so much content here uh, to continue to be shared uh, online for people. So as long as there are supporters and sponsors continuing uh, to support this ministry work, Chris is going to keep doing work. Mark is going to keep doing work with community engagement, pulling quotes, creating images, sharing it with people, providing links, and working on the advertising. So the the ministry of Veracity Hill will continue on. So we would love to get your financial support, either as a sponsor or a patron. A patron is someone who just chips it, uh, a few bucks in each month, five, ten, twenty. We'd love to get your recurring, ongoing monthly support. And you can go to veracityhill.com to start that today. Well, I'm excited uh, for today's episode, episode 200. We're talking with Lee Strobel on The Case for Christ. Before we get back to that conversation, though, we have a segment of the show that we like to call... What's Behind Kurt? What's Behind Kurt is the name of the game. There's a green screen behind me, and presumably Chris has had the banner of Veracity Hill up. Of course, I don't know. He could have put something else for all I know. This is his chance to do that, actually. It's like 20 questions, except it's only 15 questions. And I have three minutes, which I'm going to be putting on my smartphone here. Three minutes. I've got to go through 15 questions. I have to guess what is behind me. It could be anything. Uh, And uh, it's really forced me to improve the way I uh, think about categorizing or a more technical term taxonomy Mm -hmm. you can't waste a question if you do you could miss it uh so it's been a lot of fun to do this segment on the show and uh it's been an honor to have you be the host of this segment chris (laughs) sure so thank you and uh all right so i'm i'm ready if you are okay and for those of you who are watching as you guys look at this image i'm looking for something very specific so don't get mad as you're watching you'll you'll see because you're looking at the image now what i mean so 
That's all. All okay. right. So it's got to be a specific answer. You're, you're you're fine. Just do the game like you normally do. I'm telling people who are currently seeing the image I have up. Okay. You'll they'll you'll understand when three minutes is up. Okay. Okay. All right. So I'm ready. I am ready. There's an image up. Okay. Is it a person? No. Is it a place? Yes. Is it a fictional place? No. Is it on planet Earth? Yes. Why'd you have to think about that one? <laughs> is it, look, he's looking up. He's, no, 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 <laughs> sorry, time's going. Is it in the Western Hemisphere? Yes. Is it in the, is it in the United States? Yes. Is it east of the Mississippi? No. Is this in the St. Louis metro area? <laughs> I went more direct because he's not sure about the Mississippi question. Uh, what was that question again? Sorry. Is it in the St. Louis metro area? Yes. Oh, nice. Okay, good. Man, I've still got two minutes. How many questions? You've used eight questions. Okay, but this is good. Um, okay, St. Louis metro area. Um, uh, does it have something to do with my life change coming up? So, like, does it have something to do with Faith Ascent Ministries? Mm, no. No. Okay, so it's not like an image of the office. Uh, which you could have looked up mm. on Google Street View or something. Uh, okay, so um, is this located in downtown St. Louis? Yes. Is it uh, the Gateway Arch? It is the Gateway Arch. Well done. I did it! <laughs> in how many questions? Ten questions. Is that my best Ten or ever? 11. I think so. I think it might be. What a way to go out. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Well, thank you. Well done. Thank you. We can hear the celebratory music. Very, the fanfare. Wow. Now, I'll let the music finish. There we are. Wonderful. Thank you. Uh, for our longtime listeners, you know, my batting average at this segment's about 250, so maybe one out of four, maybe one out of five. I don't think I'm below the Mendoza line, to use a baseball reference, though. Uh, and so, wow, I'm, I'm very pleased. What a, what a nice way to, to end on that note. And, and good selection, if that was you or Mark or that was wh- me, yeah. whoever it was. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yep, yep. Ah, well, time to spare. We still had 20 seconds on the clock here. Record time, too. Man, what a nice way to go out. All right, well, that's what's behind Kurt. It's been really fun to do that segment with the green screen behind me. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll find some other way to use the green screen in the ongoing ministry work of the Apologetic Enterprise, uh, which is so important and big picture, too, when we think about things like, oh, I'll miss Veracity Hill. Well, know that if if it doesn't come back at some point in the future, it's been a good run uh, doing these interviews. And uh, there's a fellow, James, uh, who's been one of my longtime listeners. And, and Chris, I don't know if you saw his comment on Facebook from a couple weeks ago. He says he's listened through and backwards all of the interviews we've done. Wow. Which is amazing. That's great. It's a lot of interviews. And it's a lot of great content. You think about all the people and the variety of people and subjects we've had on the show. Mm -hmm. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, jumping back to our uh, honored guest on today's episode, Lee Strobel, author of The Case for Christ and, of course, the many other uh, best-selling books. Uh, Great to have you on the program, Lee. Let's 
pick up where we you left know, off. I just have to say, and I, I'm being totally honest here. I guessed it after the fourth question. <laughs> I did because it's so logical that you're going to St. Louis, and I'm thinking, what's the only I, you know, visual that represents it? Well, it's, it's the arch, right? Yes. I mean, <laughs> the investigative reporter was ahead of it on that one. Yes. <laughs> It could have been Bush Stadium, isn't that the main that I was I, I was hoping it was not Bush. Yeah, yeah that I was a possibility. Yeah, yeah. I'm still mad at the uh, St. Louis uh, Cardinals for stealing away Lou Brock. Oh, the- one of the worst trades in, in MLB history, of course. Horrible, horrible trade. Horrible trade. Yes, you know it. It is great to discover that you and I are kindred spirits on <laughs> baseball. Well, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned on air, I think I did, that, that um, Ernie Banks kissed me on the cheek when I was a toddler. So I feel like I'm obligated to be a Cubs fan my whole life. Yes, very nice. Good, good. And I was interviewing, you remember, um, you're, you're younger than I am, but um, the catcher during the 69 uh, Cubs was Randy Hundley. Okay, yeah. Um. And his son was a catcher for the Mets. Oh, and his son eventually did come to the Cubs, too, for a season or two. Yeah, I think he did. So, but I was interviewing Randy Hundley, who is a Christian, um, at a church one day, and he told the story of his son having come to faith in Christ. And Randy Hundley broke down and wept like a baby uh, as he was telling the story of his son coming to faith in Christ. It was very, very touching. Wonderful. Yes, I, I'm sure I've met Randy and his son, Todd Hundley. When I was a kid, uh, I went to the Cubs conventions uh, where the fans could go, and I even snuck into the players' party room. Uh, it was great. I've got pictures with Ron Santo and Ernie Banks and all these guys. I'll have to send you some of the fun images. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. Very cool. Okay, so jumping back to our conversation, uh, we were talking about the resurrection, and in your investigation, you had gone out, set um, your mind on disproving uh, the resurrection in order to save your marriage. And so you interviewed some of the highest and best authorities on these subject matters, and you got hit with a sack of bricks sometimes because the answer you were looking for was not what they gave. And and so... um, when you are giving an argument for the resurrection today, what are some of these lines of reasoning that you propose for people to, yeah. to consider? And, and how do the objections you used to put out not hold weight on, on those facts? Well, uh, Gary Habermas, who's a great resurrection scholar, who's just about done writing his 5,000-page uh, tome on the resurrection, uh, years ago, he used to use three E's, three words that begin with the letter E to summarize the evidence for the resurrection because Easter begins with E and it's easy to remember. So just to show him up, I use four words that begin with the letter E uh, when I build my case for the resurrection. I'll do it very quickly. Uh, the first C stands for execution, that Jesus was dead after being crucified. Uh, not only do we have multiple sources in the New Testament, we've got five ancient sources outside the New Testament confirming and corroborating that he was dead. But we even have the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is a peer-reviewed scientific um, secular medical journal that carried an investigation into the death of Jesus. And the conclusion was, quote, clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead even before the wound to his side was inflicted. So execution, Jesus was dead. Second, early accounts. Um, I used to think as a skeptic that the resurrection was a legend that developed over a century or two after the death of Jesus. 
But we have preserved for us a creed, a statement of conviction of the first Christians that uh, the Apostle Paul preserves for us in 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 3, that says Jesus died. Why? For our sins. He was buried. He rose on the third day. And then he mentions the specific names of eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses to whom he appeared. Now, scholars, and we can talk if you'd like later about why, but scholars in this field, especially James D.G. Dunn, have dated this creed to within months of the death of Jesus. And therefore, the beliefs that make up that creed go back even earlier, virtually, to the cross itself. So there's no huge time gap between the death of Jesus and the later development of a legend that he rose from the dead. Third E is for empty. Uh, we have an empty tomb. And, the, you know, there's a lot of ways you can get at that, but the, the, I think the most persuasive way is to show from seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible. Or no, I take that back. I take that back. Um, no, I'll, I'll do it this way. I mean, build a case a little differently. Uh, for the empty tomb, the uh, we have sources inside and outside the New Testament that when the disciples began proclaiming that Jesus had risen, what the opponents said was, oh, well, the disciples stole the body. Now, they're conceding the tomb is empty. They're just trying to explain how it got empty. It's like if you're a teacher and, and a student comes up to you and says, a dog ate my homework. That student's admitting, look, I don't have my homework, but I can explain what happened to it. The dog ate it. And so um, everybody's conceding the tomb was empty. Uh, the disciples didn't have the motive or the means or the opportunity to steal the body. So that's a stupid argument. Uh, everybody recognized it as stupid back then and today as well. Uh, so the tomb was empty. I think the best explanation is the fourth word that begins with the letter E, which is the word eyewitnesses. Um, you know, much of what we know from ancient history um, comes from one or two facts, one or two sources. So if we have a fact from ancient history, we have maybe one good source for it or maybe two good sources for a lot of the facts that we know of ancient history. And yet for the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus, we have no fewer than nine ancient sources uh, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. That is an avalanche of historical data. And it transformed the disciples. Uh, we have seven ancient sources, six of them outside the Bible, that confirm that the disciples lived lives of deprivation and suffering as a result of their proclamation that Jesus had risen. What happened to some of them uh, in their later years uh, can get a little bit murky in history, but what is not murky is their willingness to die for their conviction that Jesus had risen and they had encountered him. Um, so this transformed their lives. And you have to ask yourself the question that, you know, what would cause them to be willing to do that? Uh, and I think the answer is, you know, if all people have ever lived in history, the disciples were in a unique position to know for a fact whether Jesus had risen or not. They know what, knew whether it was true. They knew whether it was a lie. They said they talked to him. They touched him. They ate with him. They knew the truth. And knowing the truth, they were willing to die for. That tells me something about the veracity of their claims. So I ended up spending a year and nine months um, investigating the resurrection of Jesus and it all came down on November the 8th of 1981 to a Sunday afternoon where I sat down with all the evidence and I said, you know, a good juror reaches a verdict. And um, so I said, I, I, the evidence is in. I got to reach a verdict. 
And as I kind of weighed all the evidence, I realized it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. Mm-hmm. That's when the scales kind of went like that. And I realized based on the historical data, I was convinced that Jesus didn't just claim to be the son of God. He backed up that claim by returning from the dead. And that's when I came to faith in Christ. So what you're saying is when you were an atheist, and whether one's an atheist or an agnostic, or really uh, even if someone's religious of a, of a non-Christian sort, when we're analyzing the arguments here, yeah, the, the theories or hypotheses on alternative explanations do not make the best sense of, yeah. of the historical facts that we have. And so right. regardless of how one identifies, because maybe some people might think, oh, well, we just – maybe we don't know what happened. Uh, even that approach just does not make the most rational conclusion given the evidence. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I mean it's the – what, what um, hypothesis best accounts for the facts of history? Um, you know, and it's sort of going back to the James Dixon thing that we talked about. You can raise all kinds of objections and, and, and try to poke holes in it as best you can. And you may be able to do a fairly good job, but then put on the different glasses and say, wait a minute. Um, the explanation that Jesus really did return from the dead fits the facts so much more snugly than any alternative theory that, um, I, and unless you have a, um, inviolable um, prejudice against the supernatural, um, and and you, you and you say to yourself, um, you know, uh, someone coming back from the dead is impossible. So I'm going to believe any explanation, no matter how absurd it is, because it's impossible. Uh, well, that ignores all the other evidence from cosmology, physics, biochemistry, genetics, human consciousness that point toward the existence of a supernatural creator who matches the description of the God of the Bible. So I think I think the, the, the conclusion that Jesus physically returned from the dead is the most logical conclusion given the facts that we have. Very nice. Okay, so uh, that I think is a, a stellar argument for people to... Um, to think about and re- reflect on. Um, and you mentioned these other areas of looking at evidence for God's existence. So maybe let me widen it out a little bit here. Um, yeah. Why is it important for Christians to study apologetics in, in the first place? Well, I think it's ever more important in the 21st century. We live in an increasingly skeptical and hostile even world toward Christianity, toward the Christian message. Uh, Anybody on Twitter knows that to be true (laughs) who's a Christian. Um, And and so uh, we need it for a couple of reasons. One is that the Bible tells us, it tells all Christians in 1 Peter 3.15, if you're a follower of Jesus, we are to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have and to do it gently and respectfully. So we're, we're commanded in Scripture to do that. And what it does is two things. First of all, it increases our own confidence in our faith. Uh, secondly, it increases our confidence in reaching out to other people, people like I was, a skeptic or an atheist, an agnostic, a member of a different world religion, someone uh, in spiritual neutral. Um, it increases our confidence in reaching out to them and being more effective uh, in evangelism. So I think um, my friend Jay Warner Wallace uh, made the statement once that evangelism in the 21st century is spelled apologetics. And uh, he was that's hyperbolic and he would admit that. But his point is well made, which is that 
uh, for us to be able to share Jesus in this increasingly skeptical world. We have to give reasons for why this makes sense and to give answers to questions that people raise as objections. Now, I think it looks different than apologetics did in the 1980s or 1970s or 1990s. Uh, I think today we have to remember the last part of that verse, 1 Peter 3.15, to do it with gentleness and respect. And that involves asking more questions and giving answers. It involves um, uh, patience. It involves validating the other person as someone who matters to God. Uh, they're not our enemy because they ask questions. Um, it involves us um, um, uh, doing more listening than talking. Uh, it involves us respecting the fact that we're all on a journey and some people may not be as far along in their journey as we are. That's okay. Uh, we're going to respect them nonetheless. And um, so I, I think those kind of sensitivities are especially important these days. And uh, if I can say, it requires also too good scholarship. And, yeah. and, and so I say that because uh, last autumn, uh, we had our annual Defenders Conference, uh, and it was on gospel differences. We had Mike Lacona, Rob Bowman, Craig Keener, and Bart Ehrman. Who would invite Bart Ehrman to a Christian <laughs> event? Uh, and, and actually, we found out it was the first time in 30 years he had been invited to a Christian wow. event. And wow. and he actually – so you talk about how apologetics has changed from even the 1980s. Let me just mention this because um, he also observed that as well. Mm. He says, what I was most – in reflecting upon – our conference, he doesn't mention it, but that's all right. He says, what I was interested in was how Christian apologetics, the intelligent defense of the claims of the faith, has changed in the many years since I was involved in the movement, shifted in ways I never would have imagined, very much away from our old fundamentalist assumptions and assertions into a far more reasonable and intellectually sustainable form of discourse that requires actual research and knowledge rather than hardcore theological assertion based on completely dubious premises. So, wow, I never heard that quote. That's awesome. So for, for uh, Ehrman to say that, it's like, yeah, even he has realized the, the game plan for Christians, if you will, has changed. And, and not that we're doing scholarship with, with an agenda, um, but that he's noticed there are people sincerely seeking the truth in their research and, uh, and and our scholarship, too, is another thing where we need to be, um, you know, striving our best at, at yeah. doing with a, with a good intent and a good heart. Yeah, absolutely. I, I never heard that quote. That's awesome that he would perceive, perceive that. And I think he's absolutely right. Um, and it's um, it's incumbent on us as believers, as followers of Christ, to be uh, prepared to engage with people. Um, you know, uh, Bart is not our enemy. Uh, Richard Dawkins is not our enemy. Amen. Daniel Dennett is not our enemy. Sam Harris is not our enemy. I had many of those people on my TV show. I remember I had Sam Harris on back in his early days after he wrote The End of Faith. Uh, they're not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. And, and so um, God loves Bart. He loves Sam Harris. He loves these people. He, Jesus died for them. Um, you know, we have never, as we walk through life, you will never lock eyes with another human being who Jesus did not die for. Hmm. Uh, God loves each and every one of us. And so I think having a kind of respect and gentleness as we engage with people is ever more important. Hmm. Yes, that you and I are on, on par there. Uh, I, I remind people that uh, our intellectual opponents um, are not our enemies. 
in in the big picture. They are yeah. the victims of yeah. of the evil one, uh, yeah. and so they're they're the ones that God wants to repent and come over uh, and uh, to have the, their eyes opened and their hearts softened uh, as well. And and for you, that was something that was a part of your journey was softening um, your heart, if you will, and yeah. um, from. At least, as I recall, in the movie I was, it was depicted you had a tension with your father. Um, yeah. And I don't know if that was uh, creative or if that were, was the truth, but I would be interested. Was that the case for you uh, growing up? Yeah, I had a very bad relationship with my dad. Uh, my dad looked at me on the eve of my high school graduation and said, I don't have enough love for you to fill my little finger. So we had we had a... <sighs> a lot of conflict in our relationship. And, and I don't put that all on him. I mean, I was a, I was a rebellious kid and, um, you know, I, I was not an easy kid to parent, but, um, so we had a lot of difficulty and did that contribute to my going down the path to atheism? I think it did. Um, you know, if you, and there's a famous book by Paul Vitz, a PhD, um, psychologist from New York university, that showed that um, as you look at all the famous atheists of history, Camus, Sartre, Nietzsche, Freud, Voltaire, Wells, Feuerbach, O'Hare, every single one of them had a father who died when they were young, divorced their mother when they were young, or with whom they had a, a very difficult relationship. And Freud even talked about this. And of course, the implication is if your earthly father has hurt you or disappointed you, you don't want to believe in or know a heavenly father because you just imagine he's just going to be a, a multiplied version of your earthly father. And if your earthly father hurt you, he, uh, this, this heavenly father is only going to hurt you more. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think that played a, a role. By the way, C.S. Lewis has an antidote for that. Um, and his antidote is if, if you wrestle with this, if your father wound has, has got you going down that path toward atheism, uh, he said, imagine for a moment, what would the perfect father be like? He'd be loving. He'd be kind. He'd be generous. He'd be your biggest cheerleader. He'd pull you up in his lap and, and give you a hug. He'd, he'd, he'd go to every one of your ball games and, you know, you just go down the list. And you, say, and you, you get that list. You say, okay, that is a picture of your heavenly father. He is the perfect father. He's not like your earthly father. He's not just a magnified version of an earthly father. God is fundamentally uh, different in kind. And um, but I, I think that's a great exercise to imagine what the perfect father would be like and then say, now that is the heavenly father. And that's the heavenly father who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, that you might be reconciled with him. That's the kind of heavenly father you want to spend eternity with. Amen. Great. Okay, so when we're thinking about um, studying apologetics, uh, yeah. is this only for Christians? Is this just to build up our own minds and uh, our own knowledge base? There are some Christian camps that, that actually think that. It's just for the building up of believers and only that. Mm. Uh, but, but it strikes me that you might say it's, it's more than that, isn't it? It is. I think that is one role. I think it's a legitimate role to build the faith and, and confidence of believers. I've seen it in my own life. When I was a new Christian, I was challenged by a scientist um, in a way that really shook me. 
And uh, I went out and researched every objection he raised, and it was a good answer to every single one of them. And you know what that did? That gave me increased confidence in my own beliefs, and it also gave me more confidence as I reach out. And I'm an evangelist by heart. I'm not an apolog. I don't. I don't see myself as an apologist. I'm an evangelist who uses apologetics. I want to see people's lives transformed by Jesus Christ. I want to see them in heaven. I want to drag as many people to heaven with me as I can. And so um, uh, I think the the biggest role that apologetics plays is the role that played in my life and in many other lives, Jay Warner Wallace's and so many other lives of people who were skeptics or doubters or, or just in spiritual neutral and found that these 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 um, arguments and evidence for the truth of Christianity to be persuasive. And the Holy Spirit uses that. I mean, my wife didn't need that when she came to faith. That's not her personality. She heard the gospel. It resonated with her. She responded to it. But some people like me and, and maybe like you and some others, um, we think differently and, and um, we we tend to ask a lot of questions and demand a lot of evidence. And and I think in those cases, the Holy Spirit, as part of the process of us being drawn to the kingdom of God, God uses apologetics um, to um, satisfy our hearts and our minds at the same time. Uh, so I think it's I, I, I think it's wonderful. And and um, um, I, I love the apologetics community of people because they have big hearts. You know, people just think of them in terms of their minds. But. They have big hearts. Um, you know, there's there's nobody with a bigger heart than than uh, Gary Habermas, this great scholar on the resurrection. And yet he's a teddy bear that wants to give you a hug. And when he debated Anthony Flew back in the 1980s or early 90s um, and defeated him um, four to nothing, according to the judges, um, um, he became friends with Anthony Flew, and, and he became he was a friend with Anthony Flew, the most famous atheist in the world, the rest of Anthony Flew's life. And he loved that man. And he reached out to him. And of course, Anthony Flew ended up believing in a creator, divine creator before he died. I don't know if he ever came to faith in Christ. Yeah. But um, certainly it just shows the heart of Gary Habermas that he, he, he wasn't just out to win a debate. He was out to, to love this person into the kingdom. It's a good point for uh, many folks interested in apologetics that the the enterprise, as I call it, um, it, it's both a science and an art. Yeah. Uh, someone may ask, you know, why does God allow evil and suffering? And you could give a you know a scientific, very rigid response to it, but the the apologetic artist is one who discerns maybe that the person asking the question could just be seeking for a hug. Right. Uh, so that's, that's part of the role. It's not to be quarrelsome with people, but to be winsomely persuasive, to win people over, to love on them, care for them uh, in quite possibly their darkest times. That's a good example. I, one of the ways I often get into a conversation with someone who's not a Christian is I ask him the question, if you could ask God any one question and you knew he'd give you an answer right now, what would you ask him? Well, if you ask that question enough, 80 percent of the time, literally 80 percent of the time, you're going to get some permutation of the why does a loving God allow pain and suffering? And what I used to do is say, oh, well, let me give you five reasons why God allows pain and suffering. And then I have a five point um, sermon that I would deliver. I don't do that anymore. Is that five, have, five E's or? Uh... <laughs> I don't have the E's for that one. But 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 now I don't do that. Now I ask a follow up question. 
And so someone may say, well, I'll ask, I'd ask God, why do you allow pain and suffering? And I say, wow, of all the possible questions in the universe, why did you choose that one? Mm. Now that gets down to the emotional side. They may say, because um, my wife has cancer and I want to know if God loves her, why does he allow her to have cancer? Or we lost a child in childbirth five years ago. Where was God in the midst of that? Now we're getting to the real issue. We're getting to the emotional issue. We're getting to the heart issue. And as you say, um, they're not looking for a five-point answer. We can give that. There have been many books written about why does God allow pain and suffering. The intellectual side of that, I think it has good responses. But most people who ask that question, it's because of an underlying uh, sense of pain or loss or suffering in their own life. And what they need is not just the answer. They need the answerer. They need Jesus. Mm. And, and that's why Jesus came into our world. He experienced suffering. He experienced that. And um, um, in times of need, we need not just propositional responses to the question of why God allows pain and suffering, although that's helpful, but we need the presence of Jesus himself. Yeah, amen. You mentioned we do have the answers to those intellectual ones. Even the atheists grant that Alvin Plantinga has solved the logical problem of evil. Uh, yes. So that, that's how much we have the answers. Atheists grant us that that problem is no longer a problem. <laughs> that's true. And, and most professional atheist debaters, that's not their line of attack because they know it's it's got a good response from the Christian perspective. Yep, yep. Okay, uh, let me take a question from uh, one of the listeners here uh, for you. So uh, this question comes from an agnostic. Uh, he asks, so there are lots of religions out in the world and they can't all be true because they believe different things that are in conflict with one another. Yeah. What then explains how all of these religions came to be? I believe most of these religions are man-made creations. And, and maybe the questioner here thinks all of them are, but he says at least most. He writes, I'm wondering if Mr. Strobel would agree that most religions are invented by men. And if so, I'm wondering if he would go a step further like I do and say that since these different religions around the world came to be independently, it indicates that religion, uh, religion creation is a normal part of human existence. So I think well, maybe this is about the, the problem of religious diversity and the, the number of religions. Yeah, I think there, um, first of all, um, I think re the various religions of the world are examples of man reaching out to God, um, trying to find, make some sense of this existence that we live in. And um, um, in, in some cases, manufacturing solutions um, that may or may not have a basis in reality. Uh, Christianity, in contrast, is God reaching out to us. Um, you know, every other religion. Think of this. Why is it? Why is it that every other world religion is spelled D-O? You have to do something to earn your way to God. You've got to use a Tibetan prayer wheel. You've got to go on a series of reincarnations. You've got to follow the five pillars of Islam. You've got to give alms to the poor. You've got to do these list of things to somehow maybe, maybe satisfy this God. And maybe if you're lucky, the door of heaven would be open to you. Um, and yet 
Christianity is unique among world religions. It's spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Jesus paid the penalty we deserve for the sins that we've committed and offers forgiveness and eternal life as a free gift of his grace. It's D-O-N-E. It's done. All we have to do is receive it. Why is that? That every other religion is spelled D-O, we're spelled D-O-N-E. There's a fu- so there's there's not just differences in world religion. There's a fundamental difference mm. in the outlook that every other one is a, a way of trying to reach out to God. Christianity is God reaching out to us to save us. I, I think that distinction is important and it sets Christianity apart from these other world religions. The other thing I'd say is... Um, what I did as a skeptic, because I didn't just investigate Christianity, um, I put other faiths to the test. I wanted to know, could the could any, I didn't know if Christianity was true or maybe Islam is true. So I read the Quran. And so I read the Quran and I get to Surah 4 verses uh, 156 and uh, 157. And right in there, it says that um, um, Jesus did not die on the cross. Uh, so therefore, there's no resurrection. Okay, well, what have I got? I've got this mountain of historical data that dates back right to the first century that tells me that he surely did die on the cross. And then on on the Islamic side, I've got a guy in a cave 600 years later who is told by an angel that it isn't true. Well, just weigh out the evidence. Where does it point? It doesn't give me confidence that Islam is true. Uh, it gives me more confidence that Christianity is true. I look at Mormonism, and I remember writing a letter to the National Museum of Natural History and saying Mormonism makes these claims about certain things that transpired uh, centuries ago in the Americas. What can archaeology tell me about that? And I got a letter back saying, quote, there is no direct connection between the findings of archaeology and the claims of the Book of Mormon. In other words, um, whereas archaeology repeatedly buttresses the claims of the Gospels, here we have archaeology at odds with what Mormonism claims. That doesn't give me confidence in Mormonism. So I went through this process of saying, I'm going to put these other faith systems to the test. And what did I conclude? I concluded that the evidence for Christianity um, is unique. To me, historically, the evidence for the resurrection uh, to me was powerful. It was persuasive. And therefore, Jesus didn't just claim to be the son of God. He backed up that claim by returning from the dead. So I think we have some work to do as people trying to determine what is true. And I would encourage anybody test these other faith systems and, and, and test Christianity and see which the evidence supports. I would I would say something like um, this, just because there may be you know, X amount of wrong ways of doing something. Uh, we had wrong theories about the, the way that if the Earth rotated around the sun or, you know, geocentrism, that the, the Earth is the center of the solar system. Just because there are wrong theories doesn't mean that there isn't a right one. Yeah. Uh, and, and, of course, to determine which one is the right one, you have to do that investigation. You have to look into it. And, and that's what you did. And so for our listener, that's what I would say is, like Lee here, look into it. Look into the the historical facts. Look into the argument to the best explanation. And yeah. if you're not going to embrace the re- resurrection hypothesis, what's the theory you're putting forward, and how does that compare? Then, I mean, it seems like th- there's going to be some 
uh, a struggle or a sore point on some issue uh, within any other alternative hypothesis. So, yeah. yeah. All right, Lee, um, this has been a lot of fun. Before I let you go, let me ask you about the Lee Strobel Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics. I really like that you put applied there, whether it was someone else or you, that there's applied there because it's about doing the work of evangelism, not just... You are doing applied apologetics. I want to create more of you. I want more of you out there doing what you do. Um, yeah, we don't, we're not out to create ivory tower intellectuals. We're out to create people who are going to be in the fray of apologetics, of defending the faith and, and sharing it in a new generation. And so we're creating 131 courses. I have a team of, uh, over 30 PhDs, uh, that are, um, terrific folks and, 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 uh, all, um, experts in their areas. And we are creating our, um, courses for a, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, fully accredited and fully online, which in this day of uh, coronavirus is probably good to know, but it's something you can do at home. You can even do it as a minor. So if you're getting, a, say, a, a business degree, you can get a minor in apologetics. And we have four areas of concentration, um, innovative evangelism, um, practical apologetics, world apologetics, which is different world religions, and cultural apologetics, dealing with issues involving sexuality and, and all these social issues, abortion and, and so forth, euthanasia, these social issues that revolve around um, morality and so forth. Um, so we're real excited. We've now opened up the application process. So if people want information, uh, the application process is free. If you use Strobel as your promo code, I've never been a promo code before. So uh, if you use Strobel as a promo code, you can apply for free or get more information at ccu.edu slash Strobel Center, all one word. And um, we'd love to um, um, give some information. If, if you just want to take a few courses just to sharpen yourself, we have courses on the issue of why does God allow pain and suffering, courses on uh, the uh, scientific evidence for a creator, on the resurrection, on, on Islam, um, all kinds of stuff. It's so exciting. And I've got such a great team of PhDs working on this. Um, so the courses are creative, they're innovative, they're entertaining, they're fun. And uh, so we're, we're pretty pumped about it. Wonderful. We'll be sure to put a link at our website for folks to, to, to check out more there and uh, look forward to hearing other great stuff coming out of the work that you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate that. Lee, thank you. God bless you for your ongoing ministry. I'd love to chat with you afterward, but I've got a, a sign-off here, and it might be just a few more minutes than the normal sign-off. Uh, <laughs> sure. Thank you. I, thank you. I, Thank you for what you've been doing all these 200 episodes. Appreciate that. Thanks for practicing applied apologetics. You bet. All right. Well, um, with this being likely the final episode, uh, I want to personally thank some of our earliest supporters. Uh, first, and here I go, uh, <clears throat> Art and Claire Jarris, my parents, for their support of, of this project. I, I was talking with them, discussing them about doing this, and they were fully supportive and want to thank them, uh, my folks. Joel and Alan Miller at the Sky Floor, David Smith of the Illinois Family Institute, Chris Date and Associates at Rethinking Hell, longtime sponsor Joe Arden of Fox Restoration. I want to thank our volunteers and sometimes uh, panelists or contributors, Kevin Edwards and David Montoya. 
This program has not been made without sacrifice. For almost the past four years, I've spent most of my Saturdays coming in and uh, that time has been designated to producing this show from start to finish, sometimes requiring long hours of editing after the fact because the sound didn't sound nice or I remember one of the episodes I mispronounced the guest's last name, so I went back and did all the editing to get it fixed to make sure it was done the right way. So we've put some long hours into this this program. All of this to say that the the hours of sacrifice haven't been on my end, but on the end of my wife, Michaela, and my kids, because I wasn't home on Saturday. So I want to thank my beautiful wife, Michaela, and my children for the sacrifice they've made in my years of absence on Saturdays. Uh, we look, very much look forward to gaining a traditional American weekend uh, with our new venture. So I want to thank all those people uh, for their support throughout the years uh, uh, for putting together this program. And no, I haven't for- forgotten you, Chris. <laughs> uh, so uh, I want to now sign off with my traditional uh, sign-off, if I can indeed find it. Yes, here it is. So that does it for the program today. I'm grateful for the continued support of our patrons. Those are folks that have just chipped in a few bucks each month, 5 10 or $20. We'd love to get your... Uh, your continuous monthly support for the ongoing ministry of Veracity Hill. I want to thank our, uh, and I'm grateful for the partnerships with our sponsors. They are Defenders Media, Consult Kevin, The Sky Floor, Rethinking Hell, the Illinois Family Institute, and Fox Restoration. I want to thank our technical producer, Chris, for all the fine work that he has put into this program, first starting as a volunteer, coming through my backyard, up my stairs to the spare bedroom, uh, and continuing to volunteer here, coming on part-time then uh, with Veracity Hill and Defenders Media for the, the devotedness uh, to the high-quality production of this program. Thank you, Chris, my technical producer and my friend. I appreciate all of your work. I want to thank Mark, our communications associate, who's uh, come on in the past year to help with scheduling and uh, announcements through uh, what I'm calling a community engagement. Uh, He gets the announcements out on Facebook and Twitter and creates the images and listens for good quotes to share so people can be edified uh, with the material that comes out week after week. Mark, thank you so much for all the work that you've done. I want to thank our guest today, Lee Strobel, for his ministry, the the impact, his legacy uh, in the apologetic community and beyond, the evangelistic community uh, of, of the work there of equipping believers to go out and share their faith and to win people over for Christ. Thank you, Lee, for all of that, that great work. And last, and certainly not least, I want to thank you for listening in and for striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. You've been listening to Veracity Hill, striving for truth on faith, politics, and society. This is a listener-supported program. For more resources, including past shows, visit veracityhill.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.